If you've ever spent any time in the muddy brown fields of the British festival circuit, you might well have happened across the Something Else tea tent. I was lucky enough to get to catch up with its founder and matriarch, Gail, for a chat about her music, her artwork, and her anarchism. I'm Captain Rehab, and you're listening to The Fish Tank. I'm Gail Something Else. I run the Something Else events and the Something Else tea tent, a non-profit safe spaces on the festival circuit. I'm also the singer, songwriter and double bass player with Muddy Summers and the Dirty Field Whores. And I'm an artist and a professional genealogist. I'm sure there's other things. Some there's there's definitely things that other people would say. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I do. And I'm an activist at heart. Excellent. So I, I think, well, let's sort of start at the beginning. I want to go through this chronologically. Chronologically. Okay. Chronologically, <laughs> that's a very sort of a that's a bit of a Homer Simpsonism. Um, yeah, so where, where where do we start? So where where do you come from? Um, Where's home for you? Originally, I was born in Kettering in Northamptonshire. Right. Uh, my parents retired to Western Supermare when I was eleven, and then um, I spent a lot of time on the living on the road. Um, my base now. Uh, is the Forest of Dean in Gloucestershire, oh, which is beautiful. Yeah, I've lived all over, really. <laughs> Car parks and on fields. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sort of starting from the Midlands then onwards. Um, I say music is clearly one of the two cornerstones of all the work you do with something else, with the art and with the music. It's the it's the dual sort of thing of music and activism and the marrying of the two. So, I guess to start with music, what what is your musical history? Like what are some of your um, early music memories? Okay, um, well, my family were into a mad different range of music. My dad was a trumpet player in a big band in his day, so I grew up with a lot of swing. My mum liked country stuff. Paul, my next up brother, was very much into punk and new romantic stuff. And my brother Alex was the lead singer of Coast to Coast, who sang Do the Hucklebuck in 1981 <laughs> and hit the charts. So uh, I had a... Actually, that gave me a brilliant education regarding the lies of the media, the sham of the record industry. They were signed to Polydor and got totally screwed over. And also about groupies and pedestals and stuff. So it's, you know, it set me up for a really good outlook with it all, for sure. Um, And, uh, yeah, I had a sister who was sort of into all the Pink Floyd and Deep Purple stuff. And I was left with a bit... Oh, there's not really any genres of me. It was like folk or jazz, so um, and the blues and stuff. So that's that's what I started listening to when I was quite young, actually. Um, yeah, and then got into Dylan, and um, yeah, brother Alex bought me a guitar when I was seven and a keyboard when I was nine. I still can't play guitar now. <laughs> but yeah, music was all around me, really. Yeah, a really musical background. So then, sort of moving into your teenage years, I guess this is a time when people often sort of find their identities a bit. Would you have said that you fell into, I guess, sort of the folky, punky sort of scene then, or was this still uh, very much a... Yeah, because my brother had a brilliant record collection. Then he got bored of punk, so he gave loads of it to me. I was a big fan of the Ramones as a teenager. Lots of obscure folk that I don't really remember. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, anything with horns as well I really liked, which wasn't very punk. And um, I was on the gay scene for a while, so got quite into the sort of the communards and erasure. And if I like the music, I like it. I'm not really obsessed with one band or you know think everything that anyone ever has ever done is brilliant I just like some bits of everything I think that's sane really yeah I'm not sure what's not cool about that 
from music to live music then, whenabouts would you have started going to gigs? Where would this have been? And who and what were you, were you listening to and seeing? Bristol, I suppose, was um, a big one. And I used to stay with my brother in Northampton a lot. Uh, so there too. But yeah, the Beer Keller and the Fleece and Firkin. Mm. And, um, but I don't remember a lot of it being a very drunken teenager. Mm. When do you start to get more involved in terms of uh, playing, performing live music and putting on your own gigs? Is that Did you ever put any gigs on before um, starting to host the, something else? Um, no, no, absolutely not. Um, I tried to play guitar for years, but I've got really short... I'm showing you my hands, but no one's going <laughs> to see them, are they? Uh, Please I've describe really your hands for the listeners there. at home. <laughs> They're really flat on the end, so I can't play six strings. It's rubbish. So um, my mate gave me a bass when I was 29, and uh, it was quite funny, actually, because as soon as word got around on the alternative scene in Western that I was a girl with a bass, I couldn't play it. I got loads of calls, will you come and be in our band? And it's like, no, because you want me to be in it because I'm a girl, and that's what you know. I think some things haven't changed, but uh, Mm. it's just ridiculous. So, yeah, I picked up a bass then, uh, started playing in a couple of bands, um, then didn't do anything until Muddy Summers started to form. And it's the first, I think it's 10 years ago now. Yes, 10 years in December that uh, Muddy Summers became a thing. It was a collaboration project, really. Uh, But it was the first time I'd sung in public because um, I was told when I was about 12 that if I sung in public, I'd embarrass myself. So I didn't. I didn't even really sing in the bar, but I'd always written lots of words and lots of poetry about the state of the world and abuse and, you know, all those jolly things. Something else started. Uh, this would have been the 13th season for the tea tent. So mm-hmm. that's when I started booking. The tea tent really just feels like such a, I guess even now. So I, I discovered the tea tent first when I was around, I was around 11, uh, a bit of theory back when it used to be wow. at Kettleston. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's really cool. But so what was your what was your sort of first exposure to to the festival scene in okay. terms of the festival uh-huh. scene, not like your downloads, your Glastonbury's and yeah, I mean there was yeah there were there were lots of that. Um, I got married on the main stage at Reading in nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, hang on, let's talk about that. <laughs> it was very funny. I had a dressing room between the Charlatans and the Chemical Brothers. And I told the the Sun and the News of the World and the other pap there um, to fuck off. They weren't taking photos of my <laughs> So uh, that was interesting. Um, yeah, Joe Wiley was there on the side. Um, I wanted it before they opened the gates to the public and stuff. And we had a lot of friends who crewed there and stuff. So uh, they came along. We asked them and they said yes. I wasn't expecting them to say yes, but uh, we had a right laugh. Huh. Yeah, yeah, and it's a year later at Reading, like you do. Almost <laughs> <laughs> um, full circle. <laughs> yeah, but as far as the tea tent goes, um, mm. I was running a shop and a coffee bar, a fair trade shop and a coffee bar called something else. Um, I was also doing the merch for the Three Daft Monkeys, who are my friends. Mm, right. Um, and uh, they had some flyers for the, because they'd done Rich's birthday party the year before in 2007. So they had some flyers for the first beer did in 2008. And they were like, why don't you bring a stall? Because you've got all these clothes and blah, blah, blah. And then um, about six weeks before we were due to go, uh, Rich, the main organiser, emailed me and said, you've got a coffee bar, haven't you? Could you bring a tea tent? And I'm like, yeah, of course I can. I had no marquee or or anything, but I did have all the gear that we you know we could chuck in a van and and take. So I bought a couple of marquees and and that was the start of it. We we ran as an open mic, selling cake and nice coffee and stuff, and um, opened on the Friday and then sort of helped turn it into a bit of a two dayer. And we've been with them ever since as they've grown. So it was 
yeah, that's how the tea tent was born. It's all the three daft monkeys' fault. <laughs> three <laughs> yeah. daft monkeys and and a little bit of bit of theories are really intertwined with. Yeah. Um, yeah so from there we um, we were asked to do watch it and then a few others, um, and uh, it became a thing. In 2009, Bearded Theory Festival was hit by a freak tornado which saw their main stage collapse and other businesses have their property damaged, including something else. Of course, when the tornado hit, we sort of lost most of our gear and I've been chasing oh, wow. them since, really. Yeah, it's just, you know, when something like that hits you, then um, yeah. you kind of got to start again. So, yeah, it's we survived it somehow and mm. uh, things are looking quite good for us now and I think it was 2012 was the first something else in the Dean mm. which was at the back of the local pub here in the village of Little Dean um, in the forest uh, 250 tickets sold out um, it was like oh, I'm gonna have to find somewhere bigger so then we <laughs> moved to the maze mazes and then again it was you know doing it on a tens license which is 499 people Mm. Um, we were selling out very quickly but rather than expand into because much as I love how Bearded's grown in lots of ways it it also felt a bit sad and I didn't want to do that I preferred it when it was 500 people in a field mm. you know so we started doing different ones dotted around the country thinking people who were local to them would go to them but of course everyone started following them everywhere and it didn't really <laughs> like that. that's probably develop a cult following in your wake it's yeah yeah it was a bit uh bit strange of course it, the end of season one was the one that everybody wanted to come to really mm. because it's a sort of it's a bit bittersweet but it's uh that last gathering and lots of crews would come and and stuff and um yeah we've moved around we've had the problems that all organizers have really with sites and landowners and all that sort of thing but um we've always had a nice party they're solar powered we have resource come in and help us power we did build a solar powered truck like a solar powered truck stage um which has now got a new home and uh is about to start being used which is brilliant um, used as, as a stage as a venue as, or? as a solo stage yeah where's uh, that at a, that's at now a... with stevie steves the lead singer of t-bitch oh, right. last year so yeah yeah a bit you know i built it and uh, had all these ideas but then realized you'd have to do a bit of corporate stuff to make it work really and i did a couple of do's and i just can't handle that world i don't want to be part of it it didn't feel very grassroots and i just i love the grassroots i love the diy thing i don't want to deal with anything outside of that really um i think keeping things small um i mean i'm a bit of a it is a benign dictatorship <laughs> you know but uh it's benign so that's all right. but that's you know that's what works it's not there's no nobody abuses any power there and if they do they have to go it's a safe space and uh sometimes we have to remove people from it either crew or or punters and sometimes musicians because if anybody makes anyone else feel unsafe so if anyone's taking the piss in any way whether they're bobbing or acting inappropriately or you know they're sexist or racist or homophobic or transphobic uh, I mean, we have a sign on the gate and we have a sign outside the tent that, you know, that sort of behaviour won't be tolerated because this has to be a safe space for all. And if you're putting anybody in any danger or any threat, then um, it's not the place for you, really. That's the ethos and that's the most important thing about it. You're safe to be you as long as you're not being a shit to anyone else. Social responsibility is really, really important. We fly our colours as mm. well, They're red and black. And, um, yeah, absolutely. They're the anti-fascist colours. I'm an anti-fascist fascist. 
<laughs> well, you have to be, as that's the whole the whole paradox of intolerance, isn't it? A tolerant community can never tolerate intolerance, which is the thing that you wouldn't have thought you'd have to keep discussing with people. That should be a sort of fairly obvious part of it, but um, it's completely um, necessary. And it's really interesting when you when you do have to remove somebody, uh, they will generally behave in a way on social media or or to other people that in the way that got them removed in the first place so it's like they put a spotlight on themselves and of course there's you know i know that there's a whole we hate gay old club out there but um <laughs> that's part of the you know it's the worst part of my job but that's part of my job and um it keeps everybody else safe and that's important i thought also for that kind of thing to exist that, that's, that's surely an indicator that something right is being done <laughs> yeah <laughs> especially if you start counting the sort of people that start joining it and the sort of people that are joining something else and that growing movement it's definitely very, very telling. And um, a testament to you and the work that you're doing for it as well. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I just think these things are important. There aren't many safe spaces in this world for for people to coexist. And uh, my tiny, tiny little space will remain one of those. <laughs> so it's sort of backpedaling slightly because you were talking about uh, grassroots events in the DIY scene. I'm mm. interested in how, how you sort of got into that because obviously sort of punk music really... Um, brought that to the, the public consciousness in a big way and then through the music and through going to gigs and hanging out with bands and all that sort of thing. But yeah, so what, what were your first sort of, um, what was your first exposure to DIY grassroots events and festivals in particular, I think? I always, you know, I used to, I mean, I lived in Western, so fence jumping, things like Glastonbury were, mm. was uh, part of the game, really. And it wasn't until, I don't think, until I started doing the merch for Three Daft Monkeys and doing mm. little with them I can't remember which ones now but uh, I was even aware that that you know on that scale existed I knew you know all of the DIY punk gigs and um, I've got still got records with paying no more than two pounds on them and and stuff so I knew that existed but I didn't really experience it in fields till then I don't think no because you know it, it sort of disappeared for a while as well didn't it and there was a bit of an explosion again sort of 15, 20, well, you had the Green Gathering, the big Green Gathering then, mm. it. and then, you know, didn't get involved really outside of that until Bearded. I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to do something else, the, the events, was because there just seemed to be a bit of a hole there where, you know, before that, I guess it was the free party scene, mm. um, and then obviously that was spanked to death <laughs> um, in various ways by the authorities, um, and then you had the rave scene, which I didn't can't stand the music so I, never really got, I remember trudging over fields trying to find the music that was bouncing off various trees and like getting there when everyone was falling asleep um it didn't really do much for me and I think the grassroots the sort of the legitimate end of it came from that so yeah and then more and more sprang up and uh, which is brilliant I mean it felt a bit saturated for a while but I'd much rather see tons of these little grassroots events than the big corporate ones every every day of the week and maybe that's where we're heading now with all this kind of change with the virus and stuff who knows but i'd like to think that that's the way it's going to go that it's going to take music down to the grassroots a bit more again yeah absolutely all right well let's uh let's go to the dirty field halls then so this comes three <laughs> three years into into something else you pick up the bass at 29 <laughs> yeah i mean i'm i'm 49 now I picked up the bass 20 years ago but um yeah <laughs> Ten years ago, um, I just, I wanted an outlet for my words, really. Mm. Um, and I sang with my mates Bemis, because I was like, they were playing, I 
think it was my birthday about 11 years ago um, and I said oh can I sing a song with you I've, you know I, I don't really sing but and I had a rehearsal with him at the back and Gareth's like your voice is great you know you should sing more and then blah 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 um, and so I started writing tunes badly on a ukulele um, <laughs> And uh, it went from there, really, and it was a collaboration project. It was whoever was about. Uh, some of the collaborations were with electronic producers that I'd never met or didn't meet till afterwards. All sorts of people uh, have been dirty field whores over the years, mm. including Les Carter. No uh, way. A hippie who's, uh, yeah, there's so many people that have got up with us. Some of the hobos, all, all sorts. Mm. Um, it just got a bit like we were doing the same songs because we were only ever meeting in fields. So that was the idea with the T10 house band, really. And then um, it must have been four or five years ago, I thought, actually, it'd be really nice just to be in a steady band and do new stuff. And mm. felt like it was getting a bit stale and um, complex with other people's time and stuff. So that's what happened. It started forming. And, um, and now it is what it is, which is brilliant. It's four people who love each other having a lovely time um you know we don't care if we fuck up or forget <laughs> words or play the wrong that's usually me <laughs> or um you know we just we're quite tight we're um we've got a great eye contact language with each other now um but we don't take it too seriously although the lyrics are again part of my activism i think as well it helps that i was dumped onto stages when i was three in various performances and and roles and stuff so there's no don't really get stage right it's normal so there's no I don't have another persona on stage mm. I'm just getting up there being me and if it all goes horribly wrong then it all goes horribly wrong you know like my life quite often does <laughs> become the artwork in and of itself that's just it is <laughs> no it's supposed to go wrong um yeah yeah I mean it, it you know I think it's uh I was given the advice once actually by Jay Terrestrial you know he's like don't ever get into those realms of perfection with your music and stuff because you can't you can't get out of it that's you know that's where you're at then and then it takes a lot more time and dedication and stuff and I like to do lots of different things I don't like being although you know the dirty field halls is my favorite thing it's my favorite pastime my favorite group of people um and I get to meet lots of lovely people as well by by doing that and, and it's really nice because I mean, we did have a really good year lined up this year it's mm -hmm. really really nice being able to go to fields and my only responsibility is I can't drink more than two pints before I go on stage you know and we play a gig or two or three or whatever depending on the size of the event um, and what we're booked for and then I can just chill out and don't have any of the the walking talking risk assessment stuff to do you know I can switch that off now I never used to be able to but I can now um, and just have a lovely time and um, we've got Andrew Marston at BBC Hereford and Worcester is a bit of a fan and he plays us oh, quite brilliant. a lot yeah they invited us in to do a, a live session with them which was a bit of a shock when was this um, that was last year at the Malvern Cube um, uh, but we couldn't swear and uh, <laughs> yeah I drank a bit too much ale and then... Uh, what did they call you, the DFWs or...? Yeah, they call us Muddy Summers and the DFWs <laughs> because it's, yeah, you can't say whore on, on local radio apparently. But uh, we were doing Plant Roses in it, which the chorus is, yeah, yeah, it's all shit. Yeah, yeah, it's all shit. Yeah, yeah, it's all shit. At least some of us are trying to plant roses in it. And uh, we were supposed to just say shh instead of shit. And I couldn't do it. And in the end, I went, do you know what? You 
fucking cunt bollock shit wankers <laughs> I can't do this if you're going to censor us you can fuck off just unplug us I'm going I've had enough and then I write I write Paddy um, it was a bit of theatre really but it was good fun um, but they edited it and it all <laughs> went out and it was brilliant and um, they passed us on to Tom Robinson as well and he's oh. played us twice on his Saturday night six music show and we've been on his mixtape a bit as well so for a band like us to have that sort of mainstream coverage and uh have those alternative people like tom robinson saying nice things about you is um i mean it's not like a rocket up your ass because we're all very grounded with all that but it's it's really nice because we're uh we are very grassroots and um, like even when we're recording, we record in one in single takes, and if we hit bum notes, it doesn't matter. I think because of the history with my brother and stuff as well, and knowing how all that works, it wasn't mm. like, uh, well, we're famous now. It was just, uh, oh, that's nice. <laughs> uh, I also put on Sister Fest. We always have a token boy band, but it's you know they're either a woman front man, uh, woman front man. Did I just say that? <laughs> um, a uh, woman at the front or or a decent balance of women in the bands and stuff um uh, lots of bands in the genre of female fronted yeah which yeah. is bizarre that music press still talks so it's, it's even even now i guess maybe now that we're, we're on the on the peak of the term but it is still very much that is often a selling point yeah which is like the idea of sister fest is to point out how ridiculous that is um, and by highlighting the fact in reverse that, you know, I mean, I've I've played gigs where, especially when most of Muddy Summers were men, where I'd be the only, I'd be the only woman on a lineup, you know, like an all day or something. Mm. It, it'd be grassroots and punk and stuff. And it's like, well, where are the women? Um, and people weren't really thinking about it. And uh, obviously I spoke to lots of organisers about it. Go, well, the, you know, there's a serious imbalance issue here. And it's not down to the quality of music like some people will tell you because there's loads of women making incredible music it's to do with ingrained sexism uh lack of opportunities that come from that women being nervous about putting themselves forward because they've had so much rejection or they've had bad experiences or or whatever and we need to we really need to address that and there's some brilliant groups doing it loud women's another one you know they put a festival on that's primarily women and and um trans women and uh there's yeah, Annie Mac fronted a big campaign, but you just mm. get slate, you get slated as well. I've been called sexist for doing it. I've had women telling me I shouldn't allow men. It's a radical feminist lesbian festival, and all sorts of um, not that there would be anything wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, I was just uh, threatening us with a good time. Yeah, it's the the whole missing the point with it, and uh, so it's you know it's always been quite small because it gets boycotted. It also is is enabling me to compile a database of of women in the grassroots to mm. send to organisers or lots of organisers that I know, including Bearded Theory. Actually, like we didn't really think about that, and then after talking to Rich, they had their first uh, female headliner, which was Skunk and Nancy. Mm. <laughs> so I was well chuffed with that. Um, I was there for that. Yeah. Oh my God, wasn't it brilliant? Um, I, but yeah. I didn't. I wasn't really aware of them, and that switched me on to. This, this is, yeah. Also, both. I think both as a as a skin, just being the fantastic performer that she is, but also just seeing something kind of on the heavier side of rock music, playing these kind of events. Mm. Um, it's just really, really cool for me to see. And then I think I, 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 yeah. In terms of gig marks, I'll never forget when Skin came out into the crowd and had everyone kneel yeah. down on the ground and was just stood over as like some sort of messianic figure. Oh, she's a, a Yeah, she's really inspiring. I mean, you know, I 
when Skunk and Nancy first came about, I used to go and see them quite a lot because mm. uh, they're just mesmerising. Just, she's amazing. Yeah, not afraid to speak out. And, uh, you know, a black woman not afraid to speak out too mm. was a big thing back then. There is a big issue with gender imbalance on our scene and in any any issue with gender imbalance, let alone the music or treatment or anything on the grassroots where we're supposed to be all about equality is shocking. So yeah, there's a few of us who'll keep banging on about that until either our teeth fall out or they take notice, really. <laughs> I've never interviewed anyone before, but I've at least sort of tried to listen to things. And both my housemates, they, they, they both study uh, science communication. It's, 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 it's an interesting way of looking at media techniques, but also as a way of um, disseminating scientific ideas, particularly right now. See, it feels very, very important that science that is really. communicated well. And this seems to be one of the big issues right now is that clearly there is a huge failing in the way that um, scientific ideas are communicated. And it's interesting, you, you actually talk about this a lot on your on your Facebook feed. Mm. Um, you seem to have a lot of uh, fairly heated clashes with, uh, with people um, on the internet about... Uh... Yeah, well, I like to weed them out because um, the Conspiraloon, we've actually got a song called Conspiraloon. Um, is that, it seems to be something you've, you've coined. I've not seen that anywhere else. Is that your yeah, own? <laughs> I wrote it years ago, actually. Um, yeah, I don't. It just came out of my mouth. I, do, I make words up quite a lot. That's mm. uh, just how my brain works. But yeah. you do sort of as a part of your poetry, I guess, as well, or is a couple more comes yes. from that sort of that, yeah, that general yeah. interest in language. Yeah, I mean, poetry has been um, my way of expressing myself since I was a kid. You know, I've still got books somewhere that from poems I wrote when I was sort of eight or nine. You know? Oh, fantastic. Um, but yeah, it is. I mean, the environment's obviously something that I write about. But uh, the conspiracy thing is the far, it's a far right agenda. It's always been a far right agenda. You know, um, you've got the likes of David Icke, who have a massive platform and are making an awful lot of money uh, out of pretending to be sort of on the left when uh, really the agenda is very clearly coming from the right and I'm, I'm sure the right love him as well but it's getting it's definitely getting worse around this virus and um, the 5g thing you know that people think mm. that 5g is actually giving people a virus um, rather than you know I'm, I'm sure the whole um, communications thing is well it is having an effect on the environment you mm. know um, so it's just about everything we do I find it yeah. interesting. Particularly, you see a lot of people on the grassroots and on the in the folky circus and in the sort of the, the sort of people that are rejecting sort of modern living and um, definitely conventional ways of living. And you can always really empathise with the wanting to reject technology and wanting to reject these 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 systems that really really feel imposed. Like I often have this problem with Facebook that I would I would much much rather not use Facebook and never have anything to do um, with it. Too. <laughs> yeah, but it feels like everyone else has decided this is how we're going to organize and run our social lives. And if you want to be part of this, you just can't, you can't really function. So particularly as an events organizer, I, I, I run some gigs here in Bristol as well. And, um, and also trying to run the band, which is what we're doing. It's, you just can't, you can't not. You're, you're at a disadvantage if you don't, because everyone else has this social contract that they've made to yeah. all use it. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame. I, I really miss the days of flyers and, and phone trees, you know? <laughs> Where you just have you just send a mass text out and it costs you a tenner on your credit or something, and you just leave flyers in, um, in pubs and on lampposts mm. and and stuff. Um, and word of you know word of mouth was incredible, 
Um, Facebook actually was a brilliant tool until they started restricting numbers on how many mm. people you could invite to an event. I mean, we did one the other day. We did a live stream the other day. And it limited me to inviting 50 people. Mm. Um, whereas before, I'd press a little tick um, attached to Google Chrome and it would invite 4,000 people. But of course, they want you to spend money. They're monetizing. Oh, hang on a minute. All these people are using this for free. Yeah. We're going to monetize it. But I think we're so far down that rabbit hole now. Um, I did turn my Facebook off for a bit and I tried selling my art and promoting my events and stuff just on my pages. But you have to do that for quite a long time to get any reach and people yeah. have to actually specifically follow you. Um, so it's, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I got so tangled up in it, really. But it's also a great way with things like this where we've had lockdown. Um, it's kept people sane. You've still been able to video yeah. chat with your friends or check in on each other and, and all that. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it definitely feels like the devil's work, doesn't it? Mm. It's like a necessary evil these days. Although my kids laugh at me that, you know, they hardly use Facebook. They've got Snapchat <laughs> and Instagram and and all those other things that are well, Instagram, are of course, less... owned by Facebook. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> so so they've still got their Yeah, they've got all their fingers they've got their fingers in all the pies anyway, so um yeah, there doesn't they don't mind really, which you use. Doesn't really feel like an escape and they're not very good with hate. You know, they mm. report things that um uh, that are nasty and right-wing. It's like I've reported a, a couple of things today, for example, over people laughing at the young, the young lad that's mm. just up dead on on the French shores trying to get here. How can you laugh at something like that? You know, it's just uh, and just saying really, really, really nasty things. Oh well, that's another pedo that's going to be kept away from our kids. Now, where does that come from? Why are people so easily led by the right-wing media? Um, and just falling for all these conspiracies that it's the brown man that's making everything shit for us, not these people at the top that are just getting richer and richer and bleeding us more and more dry and, and uh, you know, favouring eugenics and survival of the fittest and all that. Um, mm. They're just pointing their shitty stick in the wrong way. But uh, I, I'm so far removed from that mentality. You know, reading some of those comments earlier made me cry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't understand national pride anyway, but... Um, I certainly, I don't even feel very proud to be human at the moment mm. um, because of this. And I think social media aggravates it and it's easier to be uh, a vile shithead behind a, a keyboard, I guess. Whereas some of it, you know, if I'm in a pub and I hear people talk like that, I won't rant and rave at them. I just, because there's other people listening, I'll go, sorry, mate, but what you've just said isn't actually true and this is why and get up some facts and... Mm. And um, they usually end up putting their pint down and say, well, don't come to the pub to talk politics. Well, <laughs> racism, racism is politics. And you sat you there being racist. So, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> so where, where does this sort of this activism come from? What, when, if you, would you say that you ever had a political awakening where you sort of brought up around um, sort of quite uh, sort of, I guess, critical thinking and uh, yeah, I mean, social I've, consciousness or what? My dad, I mean, my dad would have been... Um, 99 a couple of months ago and uh he was a racist sexist homophobic old bigot <laughs> and uh yeah we'd have row after row after row about it but um because of that it made me want to seek out uh like-minded people um mm. and to read about things and my first activism was i was 15 and the bmp came to town 
and I wanted to go and oppose it. You know, I'd seen a flyer in the pub that they were coming and, and come and oppose it. So uh, that's what I did. And then I met other anti-fascists um, in my area and uh, sort of went from there, really. Sort of meeting other people and going, hey, no, you're not mad. <laughs> yeah. You're a conscious yeah. human and uh, let's try and uh, convince other people the same. <laughs> yeah. And then um, read lots of books uh, mm. about... Um, anti-fascism and anarchism and um, and it's like well yeah this makes perfect sense you know the the theory of anarchism is mm. I mean, it's not uh, do what you want and fuck everyone else it's it's about peace freedom and equality so that you're yes you're free to do what you want as long as you're not harming anyone or anything um, so there's this misconception it's just about smashing shit up and yes it's against the the people at the top and uh, this terribly archaic system. That's another thing. I can't really understand why anyone is for it. You know, I don't. Well, I do because mm. the media. The, you know, we we have the best ruling classes in the world, and their divided rule tactics are second to none. Um, and say, for example, the last election, all that spin against Jeremy Corbyn was a case in point. Really, when loads of working class people voted for Boris because. Mm. They were just allowed, they own the media and they were just allowed to tell lies and and there's no recourse for that, which makes for a very scary world, really. There is all of that, which is the the complex sort of more dangerous and I guess more modern a bit. I think also behind it, there is the far more simple thing that people just don't like change. People are scared of change. That's why they don't want their neighbourhood to have people they don't like, they, people they don't not like people they don't know in it and that's why they don't want they don't want change they, they think well i have a reasonably comfortable life right now i have had conversations with people where they were like yeah i don't like boris but we know what he's like we we know and understand that kind of villainy so people i suppose people yeah there's very much sort of people yeah people are afraid of change change is scary change is difficult but our natural state as humans is uh to adapt to change mm. uh, i think again it's the um it comes down to the the divide and rule thing you know it's like um with the transphobia thing now it's very much like the homophobia thing was in the 80s which i lived through and you know my mm. brother's gay um I, lots of my friends are gay i hung out on the gay scene um and watched some of my friends get beaten black and blue just because they were gay and the same thing is happening now uh, a because there's money in it from you know people will exploit like they exploited the pink pound but also there was money to be made from hating these people um and b it's just another way of dividing people it's the same with all the conspiracy lunacy that's fed out there you know much as i just cannot tolerate it because i think especially the stuff around the virus is really dangerous mm. and the anti-vaxxies stuff and and all that it's just this way of um it's a form of repression and it's a form of divide and it all comes from from the right um for anybody to say that you know well it's all right it's better the devil you know it's terrifying really mm. and it's just you know i mean i remember the thatcher years and uh, the whole there is no such thing as society and her selling off the council houses I, I was in a council house then and i remember the people that got the new front doors and all of a sudden you weren't allowed to play with their kids or you had to take your shoes off at the door or whatever um just dividing and dividing and dividing because if we all got together all of us who had the views against uh austerity and against this kind of uh control and neglect of poor and disabled people and all the rest of it um which i think most people if they're honest that what they think that these things are bad but they're terrified like you say of their their own situation changing but they're only terrified of that because they're told that you know these brown people are going to come mm. and take your jobs and your benefits and your women 
you know, and your kids and, and all the rest keep what of little it. they have. Yeah. And, you know, that mentality, that whole I'm all right, Jack mentality is kind of fed through from the 70s. Um, like, you know, most most working class people identify as middle class now because they're not mm. living in a box under a bloody railway bridge. You know, you're not middle class, you're working class if you're working. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's that. But um, that, again, was just another slice in the pie because uh, there's not many of them and there's loads of us. But yeah, I think I'd always I'd always thought I was sort of middle class at school until I went to uni and met real middle class people. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly the divide in the in the flat I was living with was people who'd been skiing and the two of us that hadn't. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think the the main difference is, is those kids that go skiing, they haven't got massive fucking debts hanging over their heads, have they now? <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, hard for that to feel real, to be honest. It was, it was really built up as this big, scary thing. But then the way to game the system is never earn enough to have to pay it back. <laughs> Stay poor. <laughs> I win. Yeah, which... You know, most of us, I never went to you. I didn't do any mm. further education. Well, I did. I started studying to be an accountant and then dropped it. Oh, wow. That's, I, I would never have expected that. That's no, sad. I really like numbers. Um, mm. I, don't, I mean, I left school, did a YTS in a card shop that had a Thornton's in it. So I used to get to eat loads of chocolates <laughs> for free when I was 16 for my 30, 20, £29.75 a week or something. Um, I've left home by then as well. And, um I'd started a art foundation course as well, but in the first two weeks they started talking about rules, and I'm like, well, there can't be rules to creativity. That's mm. diabolical. I'm not not coming anymore. I'm, you know, I've got a few O levels. I was the last year of O levels, um, but I'm pretty not uneducated, you know, because I read lots of books and mm. I'm interested in things and I will study things, but not, you know, not like you have to to get your degree or. Yeah, well, that's, that's the thing. I, I sort of crashed and burned out of uni when it came to the end of it. While my mental health sort of did whatever whatever that was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's interesting yeah, that the idea that of, the, of education education is something that really you should just be and most people do just take part in constantly throughout their whole lives and it shouldn't um, necessarily be confined to institutions or examining bodies or regulatory authorities it's a it's a it's a, it's a state of, of constant learning and constant reading and that uh, there's a sort of gatekeeping which you definitely see in the way that sort of the, the institutions of, of the, the modern university operate in terms of admissions definitely and particularly with the huge the huge scandal that's been oh um, happened. i don't know if has that has that hurt like you and your family with your daughter um studying um, her well, is that? there um i was with dan and lizzie actually when that news came out and dan's sister was i can't remember she was given a c or a d when she was told to get an a or something but anyway was well down graduate in barnsley that's Dan and Lizzie from the Dirty Field Whores, not our own Shanty Dan and Lizzie Blower, I hasten to add. And then Marla messaged me, I mean, she's doing a BTEC, so they, they're not changing, but she was told that she'd have a D-star um, and got a merit. So they're not doing anything about the BTEC stuff, but at least they've made the U-turn. But they mm. they do this on purpose. They go, look, we're really good, really. We are listening, but they're very selective about the things that they U-turn on. Uh, it's so that they can stay fast with all the other things. I mean, it's a tactic. Mm. But, um, yeah, I saw loads of stuff on, on my Facebook about people's kids being burned, and it was all from poor areas, you know, and there's the statistics. No one in Eton was, uh, was downgraded, you know. It was mm. all places because, actually... They'd rather the poor weren't educated like it used to be. You know, this lot are quite archaic. They're the worst, worst of the worst in my lifetime. And I lived through Thatcher, yeah. you know. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty damning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd rather live under Thatcher. There I said it.
<laughs> what, a, what a sorry state of affairs for you that. You knew so. where you were with her, you know? You, the devil you know. Well, you don't know where you are with Boris. I mean, I, you mm. know, she got Cummings pulling all the strings in the background. You know, our, famous, our favourite tactician and, and eugenics fan. Mm. Um, I guess I, no, yeah, Thatcher at least, like believed what she said she believed her own dogma she she, absolutely. Was, she was a person who believed in something and that something was horrible yeah she believed it and was going to achieve it whereas i guess yeah boris will adapt his beliefs to to suit whatever suits him at any particular moment yeah i mean it's not you know it's not a new thing for the media to lie on behalf of the government um but it's to this extent and so effectively that you know this people say about like a post-truth society that's definitely definitely where we are you know it's just uh, someone posts a meme someone else shares it no one's doing any fact checking you know and then all of a sudden this page that it's came from um that's been hiding its agenda has got all these extra likes and now its agenda's out there and and people are sucking it up and uh, that's how it works it's like snakes for anyone listening who's sort of new coming to all these sort of things, is, is there like one particular book that you think has really sort of helped influence, um, shape your ideas, really enlightened you in some way that you think okay. people should go out and read? Yes, there is. Um, a few days ago, sadly, um, a well-renowned and well-loved um, social justice activist and anarchist, Stuart Christie, died. Um, I would recommend uh, anyone wanting to look into anarchism to read his book, uh, granny made me an anarchist visual art i guess is definitely one of the major parts of what you do it seems to be a big part of how you make your living so it's yeah clearly a huge part of your life it's again this is you said you, you um you briefly studied for an arts degree or about you did a foundation in arts weeks of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you, are you always just created um um yeah i mean i've been uh selling my art i mean it was portraits people's kids and pets and mm. and um dead grannies and and stuff for years and years and years um i quite like the abstract stuff um i do like doing portraits as well mm. um but yeah that's just something that's it's always been my fallback you know mm. i'm a professional genealogist as well i trace people's family trees um i'm not greedy i, I just you know i want some life to myself too but um yeah i like creating it's, um it doesn't go away um i like making videos too i'm just i'm currently self-studying animation um oh wow yeah that was hand drawn uh, stop motion what what sort of uh both um that's why I've, i bought a decent camera off a friend uh, a few weeks ago and i'm about to buy the green screens and stuff and i'm going to use my photos i really like stark contrast black and white um mm. and using natural light rather than flashes and just all you know and the stuff that Sometimes you can't quite make out what it is, but it's nice shapes and, and blah, blah. But um, so I want to use that as a background and then create my characters for to make a short stop motion animation. Hmm. And we'll probably do it as a music video first off. But uh, I'm fascinated um, with art and hmm. animation. So, you know, wait, I've probably left it a bit too late to get right into it now. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, my, my brain is um busy i don't i don't particularly know why but it has to be it's always got ideas and songs and and pictures forming so that's just sort of how it works it's like with songwriting um they won't make any sense the words will all be whirring out um around my brain not in sentences or anything and then boom they're out on a page within an hour you know mm. and uh, then i write a tune to them and i might edit the odd word to fit in with the tune that i like for yeah. it 
but uh, that's it it's sort of bish bash bosh done um my art's quite like that as well that's why i don't like oil paints <laughs> <laughs> do you do you sit down and think i am going to create i'm going to write i'm going to paint i'm well, not paint i'm going to draw i'm going to sculpt i'm going to do whatever or is it something that happens incidentally you'll be doing something else and then have the idea yeah yeah and Wait. usually when i pick up a canvas uh i've n unless it's a commission i've no idea what's gonna be on it so so which is that as you say you you sit and go i'm going to paint something i don't know what or are you doing something else and you get think, the urge. here's an idea to paint something you just get the urge to paint yeah, and then you need to paint yeah and it just happens or i need to write or yeah mm. Yeah. Uh, so you you and the the Dirty Field Horse were recording last week, was that right? You had a little a band retreat. <clears throat> we did. Ren couldn't make it actually because he wasn't very well. But um, uh, so we mostly ended up dancing around to disco. We were going to record a disco, <laughs> a terrible dance routine, but we ended up just being busy with having fun. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we are about halfway through. I mean, obviously it's been delayed. It should have been out in May or something originally. Mm. But I've written more since then, so the track list has changed somewhat. Mm. Um, and Lizzie's um, going to do a master's now in dimensional music. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, so she's ploughing on with that. She's really focused on that at the moment. Fair enough. Ren's not very well. Um, mm. He's okay, actually. He's recovering nicely. Um, oh, good. But uh, So everything's a bit delayed, but we will have it out by November. That's going to be a, a full album. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, any, yeah. Any sort of TT details on like a title or anything yeah, like it's that? Yeah, the elegance of mud. Um, I like that a lot. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a line out of one of the songs on it called "Secrets," which is about those awful people that um, pretend to be something they're not, and then cause lots of trouble for other people. And um, yeah, it's you know, and then. Uh, like I was saying about when I eject someone from the something else thing that on the sort of three strikes and you're out thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's about those people and how they react and then how they'll go and find other people that don't like you either, even though they don't <laughs> like each other and they've fed off each other's blood, you know. So that's where the title track comes from. Uh, Polyethylene Sleep is on there, which we've already got out as a single. But the album version has got Hannah Wood from Sound of the Sirens guesting on vocals. It's beautiful. Um, and there's, uh, yeah, it's the usual mixture of um, serious stuff, you know, songs about the environment and abuse and fascists and um, stuff and uh, mixed in with some humour. Mm. Um, so let's talk about sort of now. How how has how has the virus been for you? How have you how have you been through the whole lockdown? Through through the the kind of the fear that comes with the COVID. How have you been as a as a, particularly as a, as a creator, as a as someone who puts out creative content and someone who runs events, someone who is used to hosting lots and lots of people. <laughs> See how have you adapted to this new sudden? <laughs> yeah, this um, huge dampener on on everything. Obviously back spending more time at the house than on the road um and growing veg for the first time in 13 years in the garden so that's been good i've put on a few online events which just meant i could play with all my video editing software i love making i really love making videos i've written quite a lot i've painted a lot of pictures which has paid the rent and i've really really enjoyed having a year off and having a summer you know and not a conventional summer but i mean i live a mile from a beautiful forest um, and having a new camera as well, I've just got really into the photography because I've been taking mm. photos to paint. 
and then selling the paintings. Uh, so yeah, so as far as creativity goes, it's been um, pretty healthy for me. I've done loads of work on the house as well. Saw my bandmates for the first time a few weeks ago. I mean, I've really missed, there's lots of people I've really, really missed seeing. Um, that's, you know, that is one of the joys of social media is you can still communicate with them. And uh, I've actually, I've, I've even put stuff on here to raise money for the Field Me campaign. Um, which was uh, just a something else initiative. When this started, the wait for universal credit was weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. So it's like shit. And, you know, I had that thing where I'd, I'd let down loads of grassroots musicians because we pay everybody unless they don't want it. And so I set up the Film Me campaign, made, handmade loads of merch, um, put a double album together and all the rest of it. Um, Glastonwick, John Attila runs Glastonwick as well. Mm. He Glastonwick out for, they raised three grand. We raised about three and I think we raised almost £7,000 altogether. And we're just bunging out in 50 quid to musicians to like, don't starve this week, don't starve this week and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, bought some, some sound equipment you know because the rest of their band members had sound cards and could do recording they couldn't mm. um and stuff like that so it's you know proper grassroots little tiny grassroots initiative loads of people are really supportive is there somewhere people can still donate to that um i've wound it up okay yeah i mean it's you know it's four four or five months in now mm. um most people have, have found a way of sort of looking after themselves the benefits have come through i also really need to focus on something else now to keep mm. we were due to be out of debt by the end of next year um i'd still like that to be the case and um, you know we still have bills to pay and stuff insurance and debts and so i'm i'm like well okay i'm going to stop doing the field me thing now i'm going to start focusing on something else and doing fundraising for that. We did hoodies mm -hmm. for the first time a few weeks ago, and I'm just putting a, um, a compilation together, which your band are on. Fantastic. Thank you so much for including us. That's, no, that's thanks amazing. for sending it in. We've, we've got some amazing tracks, and there'll be a few more in. So that's going to be coming out what? in a couple of weeks. Who else uh, is on, that's on there? What other authors um, or artists are on there? We've got Three Daft Monkeys, um, Eastfield, um, Stevie Simpson, Brian Stone, the brewer's daughter. Oh God, loads. There's loads of posts, <laughs> but it's a, it's sounding like a stonker already. As um, a veritable who's who of the whole of the whole scene. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's heading that way. We try and mix it up a bit each time, but uh, there's, yeah, it'll be a it'll be a lovely CD. I love the Field Me one. You know, I listen to it loads. We recorded this a few weeks ago. And the Something Else compilation is available now on Bandcamp. So if you search for SE Fests on Bandcamp, uh, you can no longer order a, a hard CD copy, but the digital copy is still there to download and all the funds uh, for Something Else to be greatly appreciated. I mean, it's, you know, the arts is suffering tremendously. Um, uh, but all Tends these... to under fascist regimes. Uh, well, of course, yeah. <laughs> it just makes you want to write more and more anti-fascist songs. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting, particularly from, from well, from seeing all the all the, the the slew of things that you're putting out online, and then just uh, talking to you that you, you do seem like you're always busy and you're always doing something different and always engaged, and it's not, not even like a not even just sort of fleetingly involved. You like there's a lot of these big projects that you're seeing through. You're seeing through these sort of big projects and always involved, but it's actually sort of. It's really, really inspiring, definitely for me, someone who's always finally distracted by all these things that I want to be doing and never make time for. But the fact that you actually <laughs> somehow do make time for and actually have that sort of healthy stop off and go, this is enough. I can happily say I've done what I can. Yeah. And now it's me. That's that's really quite a, is, I guess, is that, a, is that something you've learned? 
you've sort of learned through life experience? Is there um, something that yeah. you have as a... I mean, when I was younger, I was really, really good at starting things. <laughs> and then flitting off and starting something else and then starting something else and then not literally something else, but... Um, <laughs> And then it just sort of hung, it took me years to work it out that those big things that were hanging heavy were the fact that I was starting things and not finishing them. Mm. Um, so I started setting myself deadlines and stopped getting so distracted by shiny things unless they were shiny things that were going to benefit what I was doing. And it's like, don't start. I mean, I still have the problem if, if uh, there's washing up, you know, until I do the washing up, I can't paint a picture. So yeah, I've had to sort of put some kind of organize, you know, I've been putting organization into my brain for the last 20 years, but it didn't exist naturally. I had to force mm. it. And I think that's a, um, I think that's another reason why my organizational skills are, are pretty honed and um, pretty good. I can organize my time really well. I like being busy. It definitely suits me, it, you know, because I'm not, I mean, I'm, I've just been on holiday and been drinking booze and stuff, but it's been, it's been quite a while since I've done any class A's or, or been really drunk or, um, I mean, I'm not even smoking dope now, you know, so my brain's really, really clear and, um, you know, which really just gives me more time on my hands to do more things. Um, more time to feel, I suppose. Uh, yeah, but I'll quite happily lie and, and read a book. I'm not much of a telly watcher, you know, I watch a good documentary or something, but um, yeah, I'm good at downtime as well. I'll sit and read, lie and read a book in the bath or whatever. I can still, self-care is really important, mm. but my creative brain doesn't shut up. So it's good to keep busy, but know your limits as well um, and have a deadline. If you don't reach it or you don't pull it off, it doesn't matter, but it's motivating. Yeah like our album not being out till November now <laughs> which is just sitting here but it can't be helped circumstances have made it that way so yeah I, I think if anything it just gives you more time to build hype and by the time it does come out people will be hungry for it yeah hope so so beyond the uh the the new Dirty Field Horse album sort of looking forward to um when you're actually going to start doing in-person events again what do you think about kind of the state of where uh, the new socially distance events are going. Do you think this is the norm that we're going to slowly see more distance events? Do you think we should all hang back and wait until it is actually viable? What do you think the gig landscape is going to look like next year and then the year after? Well, it's, I guess just in this interim period before things do eventually get to, back to some form of normal as we all hope that they must. Well, um, maybe not normal, but... Mm. when we can at least stand like next to each other again it's interesting because loads of people are doing that anyway but um fair play to the ones like you've got the palladium club in biddeford doing the big sheep thing um that's is that that's the sort of spaces we need to be looking at for next year mm. I, think. I mean the first we've already got something else booked in i started a patreon uh to help pay the bills for something else okay so where can it, people find it, that what what do you know the, the the link to that or what can people search to find that? I think it's probably SE Fests, I guess. But yeah, so, I mean, that pulls in, I don't know, 120 quid a month or something, which pays helps pay the insurance, mm. and, um, you know, which is... I, I couldn't stop doing the insurance because it would have put the premiums up for next year. So it was, it was better. They did me a discount. It was better to keep it flowing. Uh, but 
the reward for the people paying in, they would call it a reward, is a private campfire session in April next year mm-hmm. on my mate's land. So um, that's the first something else outing. Uh, I mean, Sister Fest is booked in at the Tiddly next year, um, but with the amount of tickets that we've sold and the space there, if it is social distancing, we're going to have to rethink it or possibly find a bigger site. And um, obviously, the end, our end of season one has been postponed till next year. Where we were going to have it, there's no way you could have it social distanced. So mm-hmm. again, we'd have to look for a bigger site um and i'm i'm looking at various small sites to do campfire sessions and and maybe offer them to people the ticket holders that are waiting on us from this year uh offer the local ones to come and just use those tickets up and just do the the small things with 30 people where you know you can you know or 50 people or whatever where you know you can manage it uh you can trust everyone not to be a total knob and um and keep everyone as safe as possible i've got no desire to put anything on bigger than that while this is going on because uh risk assessing it and stuff you know and i've done all the paperwork for it already but i think the risk of anything bigger than that of being soulless is massive yeah and the safety aspect i you know if i get it i've had a lovely life you know if i give it to someone else i'm gonna that's just that's social responsibility i don't Mm -hmm. no i don't want to make anybody else poorly or be responsible for them being poorly so that's quite a big thing i think the fact they're allowing indoor gigs again that start last weekend or something unless it's hard to know with <laughs> the, unless they're massive the stream of misinformation that's coming out it's hard to know yeah i mean little i think the way forward for a bit is small outdoor events mm. um, unless you've got a massive venue that doesn't need air conditioning and um just think it's the the risk of it being soulless is huge it's like the whole drive-in thing that um you know live nation we're going to do a load of drive-in events mm. and i'm looking at it and going but if you risk assess this in bad weather <laughs> you know this is uh and then they all they cancelled them all didn't they because, yeah i was just uh, excited at the prospect of a of a 10 car mosh pit somewhere down the front like oh, well, <laughs> yeah, if we could do so- it with banger racing you know, you could get in a banger and uh, yeah. that would be, what a brilliant idea. Especially if the streets were meant to do it. Some of the new streets material, I'm ready for <laughs> stepping <laughs> a go-kart. Here we go. <laughs> but yeah, it's a bit different sitting down watching the opera to sitting down to a jiggy band. You know, from a performer's point of view, it's that missing interaction when you're doing it um, to a camera is, mm. it's weird. And it must be even weirder for solo performers. You know, uh, with, with I, I'm not normally a solo performer, and I've now been doing them solo to my phone in a field with no one. Is uh, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's nice seeing see, like seeing comments and seeing people when that's worked, when it hasn't worked. Actually, I think I preferred it when it hasn't worked. I think I preferred it when I haven't had feedback to when I have just had comment feedback or a stream of emojis. That feels a bit black mirror, but then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like the the first few muddy summers ones we did. Uh, even though Amy was only up the road, she was in Wales, and the the rules were different anyway. Mm. Um, so we all recorded our own parts into the phone, and then I spliced them all together, and then um, and then the music. Yeah, um, we tried that. We saw yours, and we were inspired by it. So we tried our own, and it sounded horrible. So that will never see the light of day. But uh, yeah, well, what we did, for, you know, Ren put his parts down first and then I put the bass right. and vocals on and then the others put their um their parts on you know there were so many issues with it it took ages to put together mm. and 
getting synced right you know and sometimes it wasn't quite right and stuff but that's how we had to do them but because we did the skype thing chatting in between the songs to introduce them and stuff it made it mm-hmm. a little bit real i suppose or human yeah yeah because we were you know in between the bits that went out on the skype we were having a right laugh and we we're having a drink mm. and uh, all the rest of it and and uh, just talking shit and just re-communicating with each other which was brilliant um and that's what you go to a live gig for, isn't like more. If you if you just wanted the music, you sit and listen at home. Of course. Really. I mean, notwithstanding all of the sort of the, the you know the thrill of the live experience and the and the better PA and sound equipment and all that, it really is about about the personalities on stage and um, and the interactions and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah, definitely. So when when I started doing the field me gigs and we all met up first in the river Y in a swimming spot it's like right okay this is on your way down let's all meet up there so we all went swimming and that was like way i haven't seen you for real for ages this is brilliant and then we did uh the next day we went into the forest found a spot in the forest invited some of the crew and local people to come down they also it was in the daytime there was no booze uh there were other people sat having picnics who really enjoyed it and everybody sat distant and respectful and it's like oh my god we're playing to an audience this is brilliant and then when we did it back at the house, we had a very small audience in because you know my space is quite big. So um, I say big, it's no mansion, but it's you know it's it's a big old council house. So mm. in the garden we could space everyone out, and we had the fire pit, and uh, we played at the top, so nobody was near us. We weren't spitting mm. on anybody, um, but it was oh my god, it was intimate and lovely. I love intimate gigs. We've all played those gigs where only two people in the bar staff are there anyway, haven't we? So it was. You know, it was like one of them, but joyous. You know, they'd be joyous now. I'd quite happily just play to the bar staff, you know. The live streaming thing is a bit robotic, mm. um, but also really, really important because it keeps your hand in. Um, and there's lots of people who are still shielding. Um, well, as, a, as someone very helpfully pointed out on the uh, the Facebook group for our local area, when someone was uh, asking about some, uh, some, some, some worries they had, they were taking a friend off for, for some time away in a different place for the first time, but like, but they've been shielding previously and were a bit worried about these things, and someone said, well, don't worry, shielding's over. Now, I do have this fantasy that this is the, the proper beginning of the collapse of capitalism, but then also the realisation that what's most likely to come after the collapse of the kind of capitalism we know is fascism, so... Mm. But then we have to hold on to the hope that none of these things, none of these isms last forever, you know. So, um, yeah, we'll fight fascism for a bit and then everything will be all right for a bit, right? <laughs> Although by that time, we'll all be wearing masks with proper breathing apparatus with AirPods that we've had to buy because the air's not breathable anymore. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I think we've screwed it, but um, I'm not ready to give in quite yet. 